Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I've got Neil Perkin, who is the founder of Only Dead Fish, a digital consultancy dealing with all kinds of businesses, like many of us from the strategy world, everything from marketing to agencies to leadership to agency repositionings. And he's actually holed up opposite Web Summit, which he is not attending in Lisbon, Portugal this week while doing some work as a digital consultant. Welcome, Neil. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, good to talk. That digital consultant life, is it what you imagined? Oh, gosh. Um, I, do you know what? I don't know what I imagined. I've got no clue. But, um, <laughs> I, you know, I think probably like most people, I'm making it up as I go along. So um, I, I think it's, it's endlessly surprising, endlessly stretching, and endlessly interesting, um, but also, I would say, endlessly challenging, uh, sometimes in a good way. Uh, well, often in a good way, I'd say. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes it can be quite, quite sort of uh, full on. But, uh, but I love it. Yeah, it's really good. What, what runs through your head on a night like tonight in a hotel room where you've been in sessions all day, probably running the sessions with also this massive event, like literally across the road? What, what, what goes through the mind of a consultant who's a, a bit of a nomad and Ronan trying to get stuff done in a foreign country? Uh, oh, that's an interesting question. I think, I mean, it's quite funny because, you know, I'm, here I am in, um, in, in Lisbon kind of looking down on where, where something's being held and, and I'm not going. And it's like this massive event and there's like 7,000 people, I think, going there. And, and I, can, you know, I go out of the hotel and there's like all these people wandering around with all the kind of uh, badges on and stuff like that. Um, so it's quite weird not to be, not to be going there. But um, I, I don't know. I, I, I just kind of think I'm here to do the work. And so I, I tend to sort of think a lot about what I'm doing at the moment, the, the kind of engagement that I've had and the work that I've done in the day. And then, you know, it's always you know, leading on to the next thing for tomorrow. So I'm thinking about what I need to do for tomorrow and what I need to set up. And, and then it, in the meantime, you're kind of juggling a few other things. I think, I, I think, I guess the thing about being a consultant is that, you end up juggling a lot of things concurrently and, or at least that's the way I work. Um, and I've spoken to quite a few people who do what I do and, uh, some people are very different. It's interesting. So, so some people do like the kind of projects where you have a six month engagement and you go into an organization, you do nothing else apart from work for that organization for six months. So you're basically mm -hmm. like a contract almost. And, uh, and that's not me at all. I tend to sort of do be running with, you know, seven or eight different things, on the run at any given time. So I'm usually just trying to trying to spin, spin a few plates, to be honest, and keep things afloat, if I'm honest. Yeah, so, totally, um, but does that, re does that reflect how you see yourself? Is that your personality that you like and need variety and novelty, or is it just a coincidence? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, it's a bit of both. I think it's just the way things have ended up. But also, I think it suits me, um, to be honest. I mean, I, I spent many years in corporate world. Um, and, uh, you know, I was at my last company for 14 years, which is a long time to be with one company. I did lots of different things in that company and had great, uh, great roles. And I was doing working with interesting people, doing interesting stuff. But um, I, I guess um, coming out of that, the last thing I really wanted to do was to go back into work for sort of big companies for extended periods of time. And so I'm a bit kind of, I've gone native, I suppose. And, and uh, uh, so I, I, try, <laughs> I guess I try to avoid that and, um, and, and end up sort of doing many things concurrently, which is energizing, but also quite challenging at times. But, uh, but you know, it's, it's good. I like working like that.
Mm. It's, it's, it's funny. I think when I know someone who seems way too young to have worked 10 to 20 years in an agency and they, they tell me that, I think my eyes give something away. And then often I hear, oh, no, but it's okay. Leadership turned over every year or two. So it was really like working for five different companies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, so, right. and it's like, well, I wasn't, I wasn't, my eyes were judging it. My soul wasn't. <laughs> I know, but it's, it's a funny thing, though, isn't it? Because, um, you know, by the time I sort of got into my last year or two in that organization, I used to tell people, yeah, I've been here for 14 years. And uh, some people just looked at me like, you know, completely amazed because already by then, and this was 10 years ago now, it was just really unusual to stay in a company that long. And, uh, and I think, it, you know, so now it's like the norm, of course, to, to be in a business for like a couple of years to get your learnings, want to move on, get, you know, and that sort of thing. And that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing at all. But equally, I don't think staying in the same company is always a bad thing either. Hmm. And the other thing about the first move into consulting, to be super general, there are probably two reasons that it happens. One is because someone is desperate for a sense of independence, which can come from a, it can come from a place of fear and repression on the one hand in the existing corporate structure, or it could come from a, a sense of uh, it's just what they want to do in life. And it can also happen because someone loses a job and, uh, and then they have to work out, well, they know they want to become a consultant and then they have to think about what it even means to them. What, what does consulting mean to you? Uh, oh, good question. Um, so I, I guess, um, what does it mean to me? I, I think probably, um, I think it's about helping uh, companies uh, and, and applying your experience in different ways. Uh, so helping them solve problems in ways that they haven't thought of, um, bringing the kind of experience and, and knowledge that you have uh, to bear and just applying it in different ways. Uh, maybe working with uh, with companies often to find the answers which they already have, you know, quite, quite a lot of consultancy work, the answers are already there in the business, you know, and, um, but, but they either can't get there for some reason, or they can't get the, get the ideas out of, um, you know, being sort of mired in the kind of processes and the kind of stuff that goes on in large companies. So having an external person come in to, to, to pull that out and to put it in front of the people, um, you know, at the top of the organization often is, is just a way of actually helping the company move on, um, you know, and, and somehow it, it, it helps to do that. And somehow, you know, it's not necessarily a good thing, but somehow often senior people in organizations, I think, uh, tend to pay more attention to what somebody externally comes in and tells them than what their, what their internal people, which is terrible, really. But, uh, but then actually, you know, you're able to add your own perspective to that and, um, and then help them to kind of understand how they can do it. I mean, I, I think often companies understand where they need to get to. Um, I tend to work with companies that, that have a good kind of direction or, or understanding of what they need to do, but it's more a question of how they get there and how they do that. And that there's big blockers around execution or, or just the, the strategy or, you know, how they can pull people together to actually make it work. And, uh, and so I, I tend to sort of focus on that kind of area, really. Mm. And the thought that the answers are there inside the business, is that something you felt or remember from before your time as a consultant? Or is it something that has rung louder and more true in your years of being a consultant? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, um, when I was working in corporate world, I think probably I recognized that because, you know, you've got smart people working with you and, um, when you have those kind of conversations where you really 
you know, moaning about the company or whatever. And you recognize that actually people have a really good sense of what the company needs to do, but somehow it's just not able to pull that out of people and, and sort of marshal it into some kind of cohesive uh, strategy or execution. And, and so often I think the, the job of a consultant is to, is to help pull that together across the organization and to add a kind of perspective on it um, in order to help the company understand really, um, you know, what it already knows. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then in pub talk, not business talk, which means you can absolutely assume a character and an accent. You could, you could do an Australian accent, for example, but in, in pub talk, what are the, the blocks you've touched on some of them, but what are, let's say five, I'm going to challenge you to come up with five things that get in the way of most companies. Yeah. Do you know what? This is really interesting because um, uh, I, I do quite a lot of kind of workshop doing work with leaders because I've been doing a lot of leadership stuff over the last uh, couple of years or so. And one of the things that I do is, is like a kind of scoring exercise to get like a group of leaders to kind of think about what these sort of challenges and barriers are and to get some kind of a consensus across a group of leaders about the big ones. Mm-hmm. And so typically, uh, I mean, my, the con- I should say the context of how I do it is around becoming a more agile, adaptive organization. So a lot of the time I tend to um, offer up a range of different barriers and and challenges which have come out of uh, 10 years worth of work in in that kind of space and kind of aggregated up and then allow people the opportunity of putting in their own. But um, the kind of focus I tend to draw out from that is you've got the kind of directional ones like uh, sense of urgency and vision uh, and maybe, you know, maybe taking it into strategy. And then, you, and then you've got the kind of the how bit, which is more about process and the way in which the company works, uh, resourcing, the flexibility, fluidity of resourcing. Then you've got skills and you've got things. You know, so this is the fabric of how the organization actually works. And then the final kind of group, I suppose, are more sort of cultural ones. So you've got that kind of cultural inertia or politics and all these things that can act as a real drag on change and agility. So uh, the interesting thing, I think, probably is that that there are real stories and narratives that come out of doing that about the progression of change as you work with an organisation over an extended period of time. Uh, or maybe about the consistency of scoring against particular things with different groups of leaders. It's just mm. really interesting. Mm. Uh, that's some pretty advanced pub talk, Neil. I'm just going to say. <laughs> Sorry. So <laughs> I, I, I'm taking notes so that I can uh, ask you follow-up questions. Uh, the themes were urgency, process skills, and, and cultural blocks that, get, get, that tend to get in the way of a business that generally thinks it knows where it needs to go. What's the role of, of crisis? There's obviously a lot written in change management about how useful crises are. Have you ever manufactured a crisis? Ah, uh, crikey, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I get that because I, I get that crisis can be a good kind of impetus to, to drive change. But also I just think actually, you know, the whole thing about the agile thing is, is that it, it's misunderstood, uh, people misapply it, uh, people get too focused on methodologies and, uh, you know, or they think, you know, it's been around for like 17 years, it's old hat. But actually the reality is, is that every company wants to be more agile and really struggles to, to act. When you get to beyond a certain size, to act small and be small and be nimble and, you know, all the things that, that the company probably once had, 
you know, and they somehow lose it over time. And so you're helping them get that, that, that stuff back. Uh, and I think that's, you know, just, just like all kinds of challenging in lots of different ways. And so I, I think for me, you know, if you can help people to at least uh, push them forward on the journey and, and, and sort of give them a come, kind of a, a helping hand, I suppose, to help them understand what some of those barriers and challenges are and then how they might navigate through that, then that, that's probably a good thing to do. Okay. And, and what's your take on the, the cliche nowadays that a big, well, that a big company needs to act like a startup? Is that the most, is that a useful frame of reference? Does it, does it miss the point or a point? Um, because big I'm, businesses def, like by definition aren't that and they've become big because they're not that. Yeah. Um, so, so I think it's useful in some senses um, in the sense that actually you've got to be aware of some of the things that you lose as, as you become a larger business. Of course, you know, it's a startup starts as a naturally kind of network, small team of people doing a lot of stuff, very horizontal, plugged into lots of different sources, value, external, all the rest of it. And over time, you, you need that kind of hierarchy and the, and the management to scale. And management is a brilliant invention because it enables things to scale. But I think that the challenge with it is that over time, you end up looking completely hierarchical and there's no kind of networked element to it at all. And the challenge with that, of course, is that everybody in that hierarchy is running at 100%. There's no space for anything new. You can't innovate because it's just difficult to create the space for innovation and to move from sort of one way of working into another way of working and uh, to experiment and test and learn all the things that we, that we think are important. Uh, they kind of know that, but there's, the reality is there's just no space to do that. So what you try and do is to help companies to find ways to challenge some of that, challenge the norms, challenge the defaults, create space to create a bit of more of a networked part of their organization, to use the kind of small multidisciplinary ID teams as like an engine for change. Uh, and that actually, I think, helps them to understand perhaps about how they can uh, introduce a bit more of that kind of startup way of working and thinking to a much larger organization without forgetting the fact that they are a large organization. Okay. And I guess in some respects, one line or, or cue as far as books goes, oh my gosh, my words, uh, The Innovator's Dilemma. That's a book and it's probably 20 yeah. years old. A lot of this thinking tends to somehow permeate from there, but what, what are the books uh, and maybe even intellectuals, business intellectuals that are less known? The, the books that are less known. Um, yeah, that, that, that yeah. touch on some of these topics that have been influential for you. Well, you know what? I mean, I think, I mean, the innovators dilemma has been a lot of debate, hasn't there, around that theory. Uh, and I kind of get that there are examples that do follow that theory, but I think there's a lot that don't. Uh, and so I think disruption is, is you know, a, a misunderstood thing. In, in fact, in Tom Goodwin's uh, book, um, he actually does a quite a good takedown of, of that theory and gives a loads of really good examples of how new entrants in the market, you know, that the kind of disruption theory of it coming in at the bottom end is the cheap version of something and then moving up through the market. And of course there's loads of examples that, that don't actually really do that. You know, Uber didn't do that for example, really. And uh, so I think um, the kind of books that actually I find uh, most interesting and most useful are the ones that actually give that talk about the way in which people work in organizations uh, and the culture of the organization so i'm talking here about books like um alive at work which is quite a recent one by professor dan cable at uh, london business school 
Um, and, uh, you know, things like uh, The Progress Principle by Teresa Amabile, that was written a few years ago now. Um, you know, so books that actually talk about what motivate people. So Damn Pink Drive is a good example of that. That's one of my favorites. Uh, and I just love the things that actually challenge your thinking about what's wrong with large organizations, you know, because actually a lot of the things that they talk about um, are in danger of kind of killing you know, what, what's good about working for an organization in the first place. And, you know, they, they somehow suck the life out of people in, in the workplace. And, it, you know, and the challenge of people doing their best work uh, is, is just really challenging in that environment. So I love books that challenge that. Mm-hmm. And a, a word like politics, do you understand that differently with more empathy, with less empathy? Do you even... Do you think of the word a lot, having dealt with so many different kinds of companies in different situations? And, and what role does politics play in business change? Yeah, I mean, I th- I quite a lot. It's, cause it's the reality of it, you know. And um, so if you're working in a large organization, politics is very real. And, you know, as soon as you start to introduce change, you get a lot of issues around status. And so, you know, the, the old way of thinking about leadership of uh, leaders, the most senior people in the organization have all the answers and the answers kind of flow down through the organization from those people, um, you know, to the idea of this sort of, I hate the phrase, but servant leadership. And so the idea of actually what you're trying to do here is create the right kind of environment in which people can do their best work and they can flourish and collaborate in 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 the best way and, you know, working horizontally across the business. So, Um, I think, you know, this for me is, uh, it really strikes not just to the heart of how organizations work, but actually what leadership is itself. And I I think the kind of characteristics really that that, um, we attribute to great leaders, actually, uh, I think in the context of rapid change, we need need to be recognizing, you know, perhaps a different set of characteristics or, or at least, you know, recognizing how they change. And what about, I mean, working in digital transformation, which is obviously in itself a buzzword word and a loaded or maybe an unloaded piece of jargon. Jargon is obviously huge. It must be huge in the work that you do. Does any of the jargon get a bad rap? Does it take time to get teams on the same page because they're using jargon in different and maybe incorrect ways? Uh, yeah, God, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, yeah, jargon is just not helpful, is it? I mean, um, you know, t- talking to organizations about agile, people start to use the words. And, um, uh, and the unhelpful thing there is, is that you're, you're just using words in the wrong context or just not really thinking about what it means or what the process actually is. Um, so, you know, you know, right now, agile is just one of the most overused words in businesses. <laughs> And, and it's not that helpful because, because actually, you know, everything becomes agile, this agile, that without actually being agile or, or you're not actually doing agile, you know? Um, so I think probably jargon can be quite unhelpful in many situations. Um, the other thing I really hate is where uh, organizations have the, the kind of, you know, the acronyms for things, you know, and um, they develop their own kind of, uh, you hear people talking sometimes, like sometimes if I'm on a train commuting into the office, into, into work or whatever, and you hear people just talking about, you know, if they work in the same organization, using acronyms that just make no sense outside of that organization. 
And that might be helpful in some situations to get to a point quicker. But really, it's just like I think people, people hide behind that kind of stuff. And actually, it's just not helpful because it doesn't help people to communicate in meaningful ways or really say what they really mean. You know, it's just that they're just using acronyms because it's it's sort of it, it's the kind of language of the business, you know. Are there certain acronyms that seem popular this year beyond just one particular company's own self-speak? Oh, I don't know. I, I think, you know, a lot of organizations develop their own, you know, and, and they have ways of talking about just the things that the company does. Mm. And, and so they often have acronyms that, that are just very specific to that company. Sometimes when I go in and do consultancy work, you know, if I'm doing interviews and things, and people will just drop them in. And uh, I'll have to sort of stop them and say, uh, so I don't understand what that is. And, um, <laughs> and, that, and it ends up being some forecasting process or, you know, some, some piece of technology or I don't know, but, but just something in the business that, that has you've appended this um, <laughs> acronym to it. And everybody talks about it and refers to it like that. But actually, uh, outside the business, it means nothing. And, uh, and actually, it can hide a lot sometimes because people just overuse it. Mm-hmm. As a consultant, do you feel that you lose less power by saying a phrase like, I don't know what it is, than someone who works inside a company that uses that jargon? Do you have a special privilege and relationship with not knowing that, that other people might even benefit from? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, mean, I, I love people who are not afraid to say, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, or, uh, you know, I've got no idea what that word means, you know, and, and it's just so refreshing when people say that. And um, I think often uh, people feel perhaps like they should know something and they should know what it means. And, and you know, this was the same with digital years ago, wasn't it? It's just like there's so much jargon around it and people started to use the language and felt like they should really know what it all meant. And so they started to use the words and things like that. And it's just not helpful because um, I think, you know, the, hum- the humility that actually we all need to have now as leaders in order to work well in this kind of environment means that you should be able to say, um, I don't know the answer, um, but we're going to find out. And, uh, you know, it's not helpful to, to kind of pretend that you do. <laughs> yeah, there was probably a phase right around the time that we met, at least on the internet, where the idea of delivering utility as part of a value exchange was one of those sentences that popped up that very few people could really define other than saying create useful stuff, yeah. which, which meant at the time, stop creating TV ads, even though one could argue that some people believe that some ads entertain people and that's useful. <laughs> so. right. Yeah, I remember that. We were talking about branded utility, weren't they, for a good couple of years. Yeah, I, was, I, was, I was a big fan, a big fan. So uh, let's, yeah. let's talk about strategy blogging. When How long is your blog been around uh gosh about 11 12 years i think now and you know i i want to i'll say this in in public in england as well but i want to first of all i want to say thank you for because i used to write from australia which you've looked at a map you might have even been there but it's a long way away and so i've been there everyone (laughs) hey Hey, neil let me role play um uh, you should see what i've got in store for you in london uh and (laughs) like it was a long way away and often i'd be writing had babies around that time, wrote in the middle of the night, sometimes an hour at lunch and post. And then you picked up a couple of, uh, of the articles I wrote. I think at least two of them. One was how to do account planning. Another one was how to explain an idea. And you put them in your post of the month. Uh, and uh, so first of all, thank you so much for that. It, it, it meant a lot to me. It means a lot to me. Uh, because as a writer, you do write for yourself, but you, you write for other people. So Thank you. Um, the, the second is I want to talk about post of the month because you've been doing this every month pretty much, right? For how long? 
Well, do you know what? I realised uh, only the other day that it's been 10 years. Um, oh, yeah. I think we, uh, without knowing, we passed the 10-year anniversary uh, uh, literally about a couple of months ago. So I should, I should probably do something with that. But um, I, I, think you should. <laughs> I, think, I think you should. And allow me to ask you some questions that you might follow up in writing with. Uh, let's talk about Post of the Month, and then we'll talk about you as a writer as well. How, how has the, the strategy blogging world changed in that time and can you even point to small eras of of thinking and like little subcultural nuances that popped up in that time because that's a long time to be doing that kind of cataloging yeah i mean it's, it's fascinating really i mean i think it was such a phenomenon in in a way well the whole thing was wasn't it not just planning and strategy blogs but um you know blogging per se and and i think you know around uh, you know, 2005, six, seven, it really sort of was taken off in a big way and it was a real thing. And, you know, I remember, I remember people was, there was like posts going around, like, you know, is blogging killing planning and <laughs> or planning killing blog? Why did I work? But you know, all these things were going on and, uh, you know, because it was such a big thing and, and it, it felt like lots of different strategies and planners had blogs and, and actually, you know, I wasn't working in an agency at a time. I was working for a media owner and uh, doing strategy there. Um, and yet, uh, I just, so I started blogging. And then through that, just came into contact with this whole world that I just had no idea existed. And all these people that I didn't know, but who had really interesting opinions about stuff I cared about and the industry that they worked in. And they were just giving it away for free. And it was just a fascinating kind of eye-opening thing uh, that, uh, that this just existed and that, uh, you know, you could be a part of it and you just, there was no kind of, um, you know, entry fee or anything like that. It's just like, you just put your stuff out there and people either read it or they didn't. Um, and, and I just, I think I probably found that the reason why I probably carried on is because I just enjoy the process. And I think that's the thing. You've got, you've got to really um, enjoy the process of thinking out loud. And that's what it is to me. It helps me to kind of um, organize my thoughts about things and just to work out what I think about stuff. It's how I do it, you know? And, um, and so it's just become a bit of a habit, I suppose, uh, to do that. And it's something which I've kind of stuck at because um, it's just, you know, I see something interesting and, you know, over the course of a few weeks, you see a couple of other things and, you know, that strikes a bit of a thought about something and you think, oh, I saw something interesting about that a couple of weeks ago and you dig it out and then you put these two things together and that, that sort of gives you a kind of a spark of a thought about something. And so you just end up writing something about that and you just think, well, this is interesting. I'm, I think uh, this is kind of an interesting angle on something or a different way of thinking about it and I really like this or whatever. And you just put it out there. So, so that's really, for me, I guess, why I've stuck at it for so long. Um, I suppose the, the world, um, the blogging was, has really changed, though, isn't it? Um, and particularly planning blogs, they were once, you know, it felt like uh, all the smart planners once had blogs and, you know, agencies had blogs and, you know, it was just like a real thing. And I suppose over the last few years, um, it's, it's dwindled a bit, I would say. Um, and that's a really sad thing because I just think it was a vibrant, fun, interesting, stimulating thing to do and to be a part of. And, uh, and I still think that that kind of knowledge sharing really takes place. But, uh, but I think blogging is just 
one part of that thing now uh, alongside many other things but i would hate to see it die because i just think it's it's a fantastic platform and uh, and just a brilliant way for people to connect up with some fantastic thinking in industry mm. And as you said, just to write to work out what you think about something is a very good practice if you think for a living. It's, it's, it's a wonderful practice. I mean, a lot, I think a lot of that change is partly due to the algorithm changes that happened where the social media networks became way more about the feeds and way less about the links. And the search engine results pages, the SERPs, for those of you in the know, uh, you know, they, they kind of mess with things, news and bits and bobs or whatever they were called for a period of time. And, and so it did change things because you can invest time in writing and then all of a sudden no one's reading it. And a month before, a few hundred people might have read it, but you just put yeah. it in the wrong, wrong, in the wrong place. Yeah, I mean, I, I think probably you're right. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different things here. I think, you know, you've got to be really committed to, to just keep on doing it. So you've got to do it, want to do it for the right reasons and, and get something out of it. And I think a lot of people start blogs and do it for a while and then, and then just sort of it, it fizzles out. But um, I think you're right. A lot of the conversation probably moved to Twitter and, you know, you, you kind of see people just throwing stuff out there on Twitter. And whereas once you might have put something in a blog post and then just made a, a much more of a, a bit of a, a bit more of a thing about it and just um, a reflection on it. Uh, now it, it just becomes a bit more ephemeral because it's a tweet and it's just put mm. out there and it, and it's you know there and gone um but i, th I think probably just on that um thinking out loud thing I, i'd encourage you know any, any planners who are thinking about blogging to, to just still do it because i think if for no other reason even if nobody reads it i think it's a really great way to just learn actually uh it's like the um what is it that that technique the Feynman technique is it it's like the that famous way of uh, of learning where they worked out that actually the best way in which you can learn is that you teach a child to, to do it. So you, so you kind of read about it and then you kind of teach a child how to do it. And that makes you actually learn it a lot better because you're actually teaching somebody else how to do it. So in other words, I'm a great believer actually in uh, teaching being good for learning, but actually I think blogging is great for learning because it just forces you to organize it in a better way a way that makes sense to you. You refer back to things that you've actually written about before and remind yourself about them. And so actually over time, it just, it just helps you to kind of make sense of stuff and to learn. So, yeah. And that's, and that's not just with the brain. I mean, if you, I, know, I did martial arts for a while and I, I used to teach some classes. It's not because I was any good at it, but I was good enough to take some, to teach some classes and being able to learn something and then having, having to explain it gives you a different perspective on it, which is, is why teaching and writing are also really, really good. And then there's the, the four stages of competence, which sounds adjacent to the Feynman model where you have, uh, what is it? You start with unconscious incompetence. You're just not that good and you don't, you're kind of unaware um, of it. Conscious yeah. incompetence, conscious competence, and then unconscious competence, which basically means you don't know you're not that good, and then eventually you know what to do and you just do it. And and I think the writing helps you do it. You will use you will arrive at phrases. And even if you change your ideas over the years, but you'll arrive at phrases that you can use in a meeting. Uh, and and you will be more coherent as, by doing that as well. So one of so back to the earlier question around the posts that you've catalogued, are there themes or eras over the 10 odd years? You mean in, in post of the month? 
close to the month yeah yeah um yeah there probably are i mean it, it's interesting is like back back in the early days of course a lot of people were talking about the social web and about web 2.0 i think as we called it at the time and you know there's a lot of stuff around uh this whole kind of conversational piece and you know the power of social media as it was growing rapidly at the time and all the rest of it so there's probably like a real big phase about that um and then you you got like i suppose you know it's probably more recently you've got this interesting sort of creativity versus data kind of polarization and um and and you know whether actually which is actually i think quite unhelpful but um but trying to kind of navigate that balance between the data-driven sort of the role of an, an explosion of technology marketing and, and data and you know good old-fashioned creativity and you know uh, the craft, if you like, of, of advertising. And then the kind of consistent theme through that is what is planning and how is planning changing, I suppose. And there's probably been a lot of posts actually about planners trying to just understand how strategy is, is changing, if it is changing, and, uh, you know, the, the way in which the industry needs to kind of make sense of what it does. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, that's probably a consistent thing, I would say. Mm -hmm. and, and for those who aren't familiar with it, you can go to www.onlydeadfish.co.uk and you can find the post and they, they, I've got it right here. It goes back to September, 2008. So we are 10 years and two months into that. And it yeah. includes names like Dino Demopoulos, Charles Frith, Valeria Maltoni, Ian Pritchard, who was, I think on my second, my second podcast, Tim Malbin, Ben Malbin, uh, Mel Exxon, Martin Weigel's probably on there, Infinity Times, uh, all sorts of people. Andy Nan, who last time I was in London, everybody seemed to want to marry. Uh, Michael Rouse, <laughs> uh, Graham Wood, Ian Fiz I mean, they're, they're all John Wilshire, who created Victors and Spoils and sold that to Havas and uh, is now doing something different. James Keig, I mean, the, the names, and it's, it's awesome to see. It's an amazing thing that you catalog this. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's, I, I find it useful anyway because I, I just like reading all the good stuff out there and, and actually people nominate really great posts for it. So it helps me to find good stuff as well. Mm. Um, but, uh, but people like it. And, um, and I, I just, to be honest, I think it's good to recognize good writing and the fact that people are still out there just writing really good stuff. Uh, so I like it for that. Okay. Google Fire Starters. What's the history of that? What's the history of your involvement with that? Because it's now also up to about, Will be five years in? Uh, yeah, well, actually, six years, I think it is six, now. Okay. Um, yeah, maybe even up to seven, crikey. So, because I think the first one was back end of 2011. Um, so, so yeah, that, that sort of came about um, because uh, I, I think probably because Google were aware that there was all this conversation happening in the industry, particularly amongst planners around, you know, interesting stuff that the industry's uh, facing and challenges and opportunities and you know there's all this really interesting debate happening on blogs and in social media and so on and, and no media owner was really much of a part of that debate at the time it just seemed to be planners talking to other planners really uh, and so um, they had a conversation with me it was actually um, Bruce Daisley at the time who's now um, runs Twitter in uh, Europe and uh, so he, he sort of brought me in along with a guy called Peter Corey who I think is still at Google uh, and they just were talking about ways in which they could facilitate or, uh, you know, become a part of that debate or, you know, trying to understand what it meant. And, um, 
and I think I said to them at the time that, you know, really, uh, if you want to kind of add to this, then I think the best thing you can do is just to facilitate it and, and provide a forum in which people can come together and, you know, just focus on some of these topics that are bubbling up and enable people, you know, really interesting people who have interesting points of view to, uh, to give a provocation and a point of view and then maybe have a debate around that. So um, we've always kind of framed it as a bit of an ongoing conversation because, uh, we, we don't like define the subject areas like uh, uh, too far in advance because we want to try and capitalize on stuff that people are talking about right now and to be a bit flexible with it. Um, but over time, it's really, you know, we, we've done uh, lots of different types of theme and subject which have fallen into different buckets. And we've got like innovation and agency models, the craft of planning, uh, all the way through to you know the the impact of technology and AI and all sorts of different things. So it's very broad ranging, but um, but never less than uh, interesting. I think for the speakers that we get, I'm I'm enormously grateful for the people that have spoken at it. And how many how many do you think you've done? Oh, crikey! Uh, well, I mean, we 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 now do two strands of events in London. So we do the planning fire starters, and we also do performance fire starters. We also do have done events in New York, um, uh, so we run a few there. We did some in Australia, we did some in New Zealand. Um, so I'd say all in, my guess would be about sixty or seventy. I think um, mm. I, I've never actually added it up to be honest, but I think oh, it's amazing. Uh, is there any? Can you give us any insight into how the different cities? behave with each other at an event like this are they all pretty similar are there cultural quirks that pop up that some places yeah, louder um, some places quieter yeah yeah there's probably cultural quirks but but i'd say the interesting thing actually is that the the kind of things that that people want to talk about are broadly the same you know it's like this is a global kind of conversation really and um and so you know to, to try and define it and and sort of shut it down to sort of one market is is really doesn't reflect that so so i'd say really the similarities is more notable than the differences probably hmm. what have you learned from it well i've seen a whole bunch of amazing talks from amazing people so i've learned an, an enormous amount from it actually but um i, I suppose I, I guess i think that um you know i love the advertising industry and i love marketing and I think we've got some super smart people in the industry, uh, but I think it's it's in an interesting place right now. Um, and I think there's some big challenges that we face, uh, quite sort of structural challenges. Um, and uh, but I think I'm enormously optimistic about it because I just think there are some brilliant people working in it, and I think we've got some tremendous work. And uh, and I think the the big thing I suppose is is that it changes, some things change, but some things don't change. And we've had speakers like Paul Felwick, who've talked about the craft of planning and uh, you know, really good kind of advertising theory, classic theory, uh, all the way through to people who've been really provocative about where the, the industry's going and you know, what agencies should be doing. So I think it's good to cover all of those things. So I've learned a lot. What do you think? Because you, I mean, you're navigating countries, cultures, different types of businesses. You're kind of in that advertising world, kind of out of it. You are documenting people who are in it, who are adjacent to it. What are three things that are most in the minds of that planning community right now, as far as you see it? And you can't get the answer wrong. But what are you, what are you hearing about most? Three things. 
Oh, crikey. So um, I'd say right now, the, the thing that I don't like about the debate is the how polarised it is. Um, uh, because I, I just don't think it's helpful. So, so I think you've got uh, a lot of uh, kind of talk around uh, data and technology and how that is impacting the practice of advertising and marketing. Um, so, you know, just, just, I think, and I do think marketing has changed fundamentally because of technology, you know, the, the way the capabilities, the way in which marketing teams run, um, you know, it's a, it's a completely different job than it was five years ago, even. So, you know, I, I think the, that's the reality of it. Um, but I do think also that the fundamentals of great marketing and great advertising are still as true as they've ever been. So probably the debate that I see is around uh, data and technology and, uh, you know, how some of it is great and other bits are just terrible. Um, but also the role of creativity uh, and actually how you put those two things together. Uh, and I think that's endlessly fascinating. I think that probably the other bit is really around kind of automation and AI and you know, maybe this balance there is between the role that machines play and the role that humans play. Um, and that's a debate, I think, which goes beyond just advertising into marketing and into the rest of you know, the organization, I suppose. Mm. Um, and probably uh, types or agency models, I suppose, is, is the other big one. So, uh, you know, I've done a couple of really interesting pieces of research this year into future agencies and agency models. Now they're working with clients in different ways. And, you know, that's endlessly fascinating because a lot of agencies are just trying to work out what their model is right now and trying not to be all things to all people, uh, but do it in a, you know, have a, have a good enough selection of uh, capability and, and proposition to a client that they're able to capitalize on the opportunity that's out there in nimble ways. So how you package that together, um, the balance between generalist and specialist in agencies, how you balance the kind of craft of planning, creative, and, and you know, the, the good stuff that the industry has with the newer ways of delivering that, executing that, and automating it, and you know, all those things. I just think we're right in the middle of that right now. So it's, it's a whirlpool of debate and interesting points of view, but I don't think it helps to polarize that debate. Right, right. So I'm going to, just to recap, because I think you gave me four, you've got data versus creativity with the side serving of the second point, which is really fundamentals against crazy spinning hook kicks in martial arts. Uh, automation, which is machine versus human, and then agency models. So that, yeah, and a lot of that stuff's been around for years and has probably plagued or infested different industries like for centuries. I think anyone talking about agency models, unless they're just doing it as, an, uh, as a thought experiment, the only way to answer the question, what is the agency model of the future is to say, whatever survives. Yeah. Right. Like that's, that's the most honest and like, it's a non-answer I know, but it's, it's the most honest answer because you need lots of different types of models because they inform each other. And then that's, that's how, <laughs> how biology and evolution and things like that happen. It's the same. Yeah, you do. And, and it's another non-answer, but, but the, the, the answer is that there's no one answer, of course, you know, it's like, uh, if we think about things as a spectrum and, you know, you have to understand as an agency where your proposition sits on that spectrum, but you also have to have enough empathy to be able to work well with the rest of that spectrum, you know, 
And I think where the, the challenge is, is, is where agencies either try to do too many things um, or perhaps they try to be things that they're, they're genuinely not, like a, a consultancy, a management consultancy, for example. I think that's quite a challenging thing for agencies to take on. But that's not to say they can't do it, but I think it's just a whole different ballgame. Do, th- do you think to that there's a bit of an identity crisis in some places? And, then, and part of it's just that agencies, some agencies started to feel ashamed about what they do and how they do it, and they lost their self-respect and, and, and gusto, and perhaps in a useful way, but also to the point where they just started to say that they're anything without meaning it. Yeah, I, I, I don't know about, about whether it's right to say that they felt ashamed. I think probably, you know, the, the, the reality of the challenge is, is that margins are under severe pressure. Making money is harder than ever before. Marketing has changed, you know, uh, uh, enormously and expanded into, you know, much more kind of horizontal areas like customer experience. And, and so you've got this kind of multiple sort of angles of change coming at agencies. And I just think the, the difficulty uh, as an agency is understanding the package of capability that you need in order to survive, be efficient, uh, but also make money. You know? mm. And because and, and, client needs are so broad now that um, and, and agencies, there you are know, so many agencies doing so many different things mm. and structured in different ways. And, you know, the client, agency uh, models the way in which they structure the teams are different the way in which you know they bring capability together across holding companies is different so so many different models out there i just think it's actually getting quite confusing um mm. and you know so probably we will inevitably see a bit of consolidation around ways of working and thinking here but um but yeah it's it's an interesting mix right now okay last question uh, your first book is called Building the Agile Business Through Digital Transformation, and you're working on a second book. What's, what's your approach to the second book from a topic and then also from a, a writing, like a behavior? How are you writing the book? How are you approaching writing it? And what are you writing about? Okay, great. Yeah, so um, I mean, I'll, I'll take the uh, what, what's the book about first. Um, I mean, it's early days, really, but um, I, you know, the, the thing about the first book is that it was really uh, bringing together you know, 10 years worth of writing and working in that space and doing that stuff. Um, and so a lot of it was kind of fundamental foundational stuff for me. It was the stuff which I, I think needed to be put out there. And, and if you like, I think the way I summarized that, that book and what I was trying to do was there was a lot of people talking about digital transformation and the why of how, you know, why companies needed to do digital transformation at the time. And there was so few good resources or books out there about the how. There was just nothing. And so this was my attempt to say, this is the how. Uh, so, so having done that book and done a, a lot more work out of the book and after the book came out around this space, I think my observation is, is that there are certain areas which I've ended up focusing a lot more on and are actually a deep well of, of you know, just a mine, I suppose, of, of uh, interesting things to think about and talk about, and, and actually lots of opportunity for organizations to just think differently about the way in which they do things. Um, so, for example, uh, structures. You know, structures, uh, the, the structures question comes up a lot. 
because I talk about small multidisciplinary teams a lot and the uh, power of those is like engines of change within organizations. But then the tensions that start to come up when you introduce agile ways of working into a non-agile environment uh, and how you structure the business in order to make that work is a massive challenge for businesses. Uh, nobody's really talking about that. And that's the reality of trying to make a large company more agile. That's the reality of it. Uh, so what I'm trying to do with this book is actually talk about that reality. You know, what does it really mean when you, when you actually start to try to change a large company and make it more agile? You've got real challenges, real barriers. You've got not just process changes here, but you've got structural changes. You've got mindset changes, behavior changes. So, uh, and leadership changes. So all of those things is really what I want to write about in the second book. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, it's funny just talking to you. I knew what I wanted to talk to you about. And then as I was bringing up the website and thinking about Google Firestarters or the blogs you've written, the books you've written, the work you've done, I'm like, holy crap, that is a lot of, you've done a lot. So thank you. <laughs> and may you continue. <laughs> may you continue to do a lot. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. No, it's just uh, uh, you know, I, like I said before, I just do it because it's, it's my way of thinking aloud. A lot of it. So uh, I'm very happy to to do that because it helps me learn. Yeah, and and I'd also say that because that, some people might be intimidated by how much you've done, and and how much other people have done. But it's really important. I, to me, it's important to point out that you've, you've done it because you've had to, because that's who you are and that's what you do. And it's not useful to look at someone like you and all the stuff you've done and then feel bad about yourself because you haven't done that. You either do it because that's who you are, you love writing, or you, you're not doing it. And that's fine. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's not for everybody. And, you know, I, I just think, you know, the whole thing about... Um, yeah, there was a great article that, that I think Oliver Berkman wrote in the, in the Guardian about two or three years ago. And it was, I think the title was something like everybody's winging it all the time. Yeah, it's just like, mm -hmm. And it was basically about just let's face it, nobody really knows what they're doing. We're all kind of making it up as we go along. And, and I just think that was, that was such a kind of brilliant way of actually saying what we all kind of know. You know, it's, it's just like... From the outside, lots of people look amazing, like they produce loads of stuff and they're writing all this stuff and they're just like, you know, writing books and all the rest of it. And the reality is, of course, is that it's hard. It's just you're just working, you're just kind of doing this stuff. And, and, and actually, a lot of the time, you're just kind of learning as you go and you, you're just kind of putting stuff together and, you know, in ways that make sense for you. So I, I just encourage people to just play around a bit and just uh, think aloud, put stuff out there bring stuff together just in interesting ways and just see what happens, you know? Yeah. Grow those wings. I love it. Where can people find you on the internet, Neil? Where are you most active? Yeah. So, um, I love Twitter is, is, uh, probably one of the best places. And of course, um, the blog, uh, which is www.onlydeadfish.co.uk. All right. Neil Perkin from only dead fish author of at least one book and a second book coming, a fire starters maker, post of the month blogging coordinator, blogger, digital consultant. Uh, thank you very much for your time. I'm going to see you in London and it's going to be really strange. Yeah, it'd be great to finally meet you, Mark. <laughs> All right, my <laughs> man. Thanks for making the time and enjoy the rest of your trip in Lisbon. Yeah, thank you. Brilliant. Thanks, Mark.